Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club with geysers that can blast you halfway up a mountain. This is season one and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler and I'm joined by my friend Nate. You're invited to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes where we will explore and talk about Xenoblade chapter by chapter. This episode, we're talking about chapter 10 where the group visits Valak Mountain or Mount Valak. Hi, Nate. Hey, how's it going? Fine, fine. Nate, I'm going to try to swear less this time. Yeah, are we... I'm going to... An age rating or something like that uh, for our podcast that we need to warn people because um, I'm definitely going to pass over that line here this episode. I'm going to try not to. I'm also glad that you said geyser like uh, any self-respecting adult should. The word geyser? Yes. We'll review that later on why I'm happy that you said geyser. Okay. Okay. I'm going to put it out there that... uh last episode i feel like i dropped so many four letter words that we're gonna have a swear jar this episode and we're gonna play a little sound effect every time i say a naughty word and uh we'll see how many how many coins we pick up at the end of the episode here sounds good um i'm i'm uh, i put a little subtitle for chapter 10 and that subtitle is belaying burnout because i was feeling a little burnt out by last chapter and maybe were you well just we talked about it you know how the seeing all of those scenes as visions and then having to walk through the whole thing and nothing's changed nothing's different it's just all kind of like you knew it was going to happen and then it happened so uh i was feeling a little burnt out and maybe that was apparent in that episode but um this one has me kind of back into the um the video game space of um enjoying the medium for what it is and using that to its fullest and having a good time. This chapter was more video gamey than anime-y, and I did appreciate that. I did appreciate that. What I mean by that is there was more adventuring and exploring and things to do and less pushing the confirm button to keep advancing text. Although it was kind of front-loaded with, with uh, cutscenes, and we'll get into it shortly here, but... Um, yeah, it was a it was kind of a short and sweet chapter, which was very refreshing. Yes. Also, side note, did you guys get COVID yet? Because literally everyone I know, including myself, my family, and everyone around me, uh, got COVID. I got COVID back in fall of 2020. Well, it's back. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, we're getting over that here. That might have been the last episode we recorded while I was coughing and wheezing i didn't know i had it but then once literally everyone in my family had it then i knew um and tests were taken then i knew i pretty much had it so i'm glad you're feeling better yeah yeah for the most part we begin in the high entia throne room here according to Callian, the ascension to the throne to the emperor throne that melia has inherited takes place one year from today which is completely befuddling from me because you might think that when she died she just inherits the throne no there is a one year cooldown period before she assumes it and Callian will be regent for that year and larithia is there and she says that's cool we're into that that's her that's her majesty's decree so if this was melia's will then she's into it they ask if nobody objects and they the silence is apparent you know everybody's down for it there this brings up for me that it's like there's been three different times where i definitely felt like okay melia is officially the empress now and then 
next cutscene, I find out she's not yet. <laughs> so the, there's, right. there's been like, I want to just throw it out there, maybe three scenes where she's standing in front of a group of people with multiple officials nearby and the discussion is being had of her ascension and her speciality and all of these things, yet she isn't actually the thing yet. So <laughs> I just feel like they keep blue-balling us on the uh, her actually doing the thing, you know? and Blue-winging. Y- yes, like... Whatever the Hyantia use, it is not being used right now. Um, but uh, that's just interesting. I mean, there's like multiple layers of confusion there of times where I thought, okay, she's the Empress now, and then she isn't yet. Larithia in her sexy dominatrix outfit suggests that we go on an offensive attack and Kalyan has a very muted reaction to that. He goes, you're thinking we should uh, wage an attack on the Mechons while the high anti-homeland is licking its wounds? And that just seems like such a such a wiener, pathetic thing uh, to say. I didn't really inspire courage and, and, uh, and confidence in me, uh, but they do go forward with the idea of an attack and uh, but what sort of form that'll take, they're not super sure yet. And Kellyan's looking for a commander, a commander for these forces here. Who's going to organize this uh, Alkamoth military to make some major offensive? Lorithia says that, quote, the Ministry of Research has the ideal solution. And if we're to infer that that solution was the formation of that anti-Mechon army, so to speak. What is the Ministry of Research doing forming armies? Shouldn't they just be, like, dusting off statues and uh, (laughs) investigating ether bubbling up in certain locations? You know? There seems to be a disconnect or maybe a little bit of a power grab here from Larithia making these kinds of suggestions. Well, we know she's in allegiance with some of these antagonists, and so maybe she's moving chess pieces along uh, to set a trap for somebody. Maybe if they move the military out of Alkamoth's home space, out of the uh, out of the high anti homeland, would that expose the capital? Maybe there's some serious strategy going on there. Sure. And that's like uh, Callian says, oh, we're licking our wounds and everything. It's like, I don't know how many wounds there were. You guys were just in a bunch of ships shooting at other ships. <laughs> These people are either dead or flew off somewhere else. I don't know. It, it's I, I get what he's saying that collectively the nation is, you know, dealing with the loss of many lives and the damage done. But basically, this plan is that yeah, there's going to be some high entia in the mix, but they're going to be recruiting more um, individuals from other races, and we'll get into that mm-hmm. as the proposal is made here. Um, but that, yeah, and go ahead. And by the way, the capital looks perfectly fine. There isn't one laser blast on it. I mean, Prison Island was the one that was really under attack. It reminds me of Colony 9. They're like the devastation and heartbreak and everything. And then, yeah, yeah. And then a, a week later, people are selling flowers, and there's only like one NPC who's. Like, I still have nightmares from that night, but everybody else is like, hey, what should I do uh, tomorrow? Um, I'm thinking of getting a new job. What would really inspire me? Hmm. And it's like, yeah, your whole family just died a week ago. I, I wouldn't worry about that right now. So it reminds me of 
kind of this game reestablishing the status quo because we still want to use these areas for content after pretending that they were obliterated or uh, devastated in some way. It's a stark contrast. I've in this time that uh, me and my family was sick, um, we kind of changed hands. Uh, it was me, my wife, and a guest of ours, and we just took our turns mm -hmm. playing Elden Ring. And that world is a whole world where just everything looks like absolute shit. <laughs> like, you go to a castle that's fully staffed and occupied by enemy combatants, and the castle itself looks like it's falling apart, and then it's been through 600 battles and sieges and mortars, hmm. holes in every wall, and hours toppled over, and it's like the entire world is just from front to back just completely falling apart. So that's kind of stands in contrast to what we're seeing in Xenoblade, where things are under attack, yet they still stay pristine, unless it's like um, Colony 6, which just was a completely flat, almost looked terraformed in a way of like, hey, would you like to build a brand new city where this city used to be? We're pulled back to the party hanging out in their uh, designated bubble room after this discussion. We've been hanging out in this room for three chapters. Yeah, this is officially our room. Riki wonders why everyone is sad. It's probably because they're hungry, he thinks. And uh, Ryan says, Homs aren't sad just because they're hungry. They have deep, complex feelings. And um, Riki just envies their small bellies because he postulates that they have small bellies and that he's always hungry because he has a big belly. But when I think about it, it's like, Riki, you are the size of our bellies in their totality. So I, I don't see the connection there of how you can eat so much <laughs> unless you're just literally constantly shitting all the time. Does that go to the swear jar for the shitting all the time? You didn't self-ascribe yourself to the swear jar. Okay, well, maybe I'll do enough swearing for the both of us then. Oh, sure. All right, that's good enough. Dumbin's excused himself from the party. He hasn't been back yet, probably because he saw Fiora at the end of the previous chapter. Um, recall that Fiora is Dunbin's younger sister. And as we're talking about this, Melia wonders, well, who is this Fiora? And someone says, we thought she was killed in the attack on Colony 9. And I'm thinking in my head, please don't flash back. Please don't flash back. Please don't flash back. We flash back. Of course. Of course we flash back. We flash back to chapter two, Melia being scooped up. And then once Shulk snaps back into it, he says he should speak with Dunbin. And so he steps out. You might have just said that Melia got scooped up and eaten when you meant to say Fiora. Really? Oh, okay. Shulk decides that, uh, you know, Dunbin's off alone. He really needs to speak to him. And Shulk's wondering why Fiora didn't react to him, why she didn't remember him. She's the whole reason they're out here. So, like, Shulk needs to get this straightened out and kind of reaffirm why he's doing what he's doing. Like I talked about last episode, we had that kind of thing where Shulk's been given all of these revelations about the true heir to the Monado, the ether rising, Bionis waking up, the world potentially coming to the end, and his motivation is still Fiora and revenge. And so he kind of got the revenge, but not really. You know, he got to the revenge flash forward scene, but didn't actually kill Metal Face yet. So. But now Fiora's in the mix as well. So he is still kind of single-minded in his vision that none of these other stakes really affect him. So he still, he tells himself again, she's the whole reason we're out here. Or maybe Ryan says that if I'm remembering back to the cutscene. But either way, that's their motivation, despite everything else that's come up and happened 
the uh, disintegration of a giant blue man that <laughs> created <laughs> all of the weapons you wield. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, th- that doesn't affect anything. It's we're still focused on the two things we care about. When Shulk talks to Dunbin, they both agree that it's disturbing that Fiora didn't recognize the two of us. And that, uh, but they're glad that she's not dead. Maybe she's recoverable, although she's in this strange state of mind control, soul transfer. Although these characters don't know much about the soul transfer. I don't know, maybe somebody does, but we don't think they do. And then Dunbin says this thing that's that's very flattering to Shulk, but it has this terrible taste in my mouth and I hated it. He says, you know, if Fiora were to be with anyone, it should be you. I always thought if Fiora were to be with anyone, it should be you. What that looks like to me is this sort of, Nate, maybe you can check me on this, but is this kind of like an anime trope where there's this hottie and two dudes are talking about it and like, oh, and you kind of materialize her and you go, she, mm, I think she belongs to you. That's definitely a factor, yes, in anime of... I've even kind of identified it. I've done this on several occasions in the podcast. It's like this... Essentially, a character is marked, you know? And so, once once the that like first interaction happens, there's like a little spark between two characters. Then it's like blasphemy for any other character to step in on that or for the the winds to change or allegiances between, you know, romantic ideas to shift Mm -hmm. in, in certain respects. So that's definitely an anime trope, but, um, you know, on the flip side, do you ever remember in high school having like having a, a friend you liked and then another friend you liked, and then you just thought to yourself, man, they would be perfect together. No, I've never felt that way. You never did that. I totally... I don't think so. I totally had the uh, the moment where, you know, X and Y would... Oh, man, they would be so great together. They would... Oh, and Y kind of has a thing for X. Oh, my God. Like, maybe I could just let him know a little bit, you know? I don't know. It's... it's I'm, it just feels like incel bait to me. Like, yeah, this girl, mm, yours. Well, there will be, there's definitely an incel moment later. So, yeah, I I hear that. I, I, I get where you're going with it. Um, okay, I'm, I'm probably reading into it. I probably offended some some listeners here, but. Maybe, maybe it's like the protective older brother thinking like, okay, because Shulk does mention, hey, Ryan spends just as much time with her as I do. Maybe Dunbin's thinking like, yeah, I know he does get in there and save this woman from from fucking Ryan and his dumbass, you know? So maybe maybe it's like the protective older brother being like, please, please, just don't let her end up with Ryan. Get in there, dude. What struck me about this scene, though, is... Um, you remember in that, um, that scene in Colony 9 after Fiora died, how Dunbin told us he's totally not sad at all? Yeah. He tells us he's not sad again. He says, I'm not sad. I'm not sad. You can put the clip in, grab it, and put it right here. Everyone who died in that war had something they wanted to protect. Family, friends, loved ones, their home. So they fought to protect them. And we won. No matter how painful, no matter how hard, it's nothing to be sad about. I decided that there and then. Uh, Dunbin's not sad. Dunbin is never sad. Don't get him wrong, or he'll set you straight. He is not sad. So, just... Let's make that clear that Dunbin is never sad. <laughs> he 
he is the cool guy of the game, and we cannot make him uncool by have him having a feeling here. It marshals his motivation to keep pressing forward here, and by the end of this scene, and the scene, and this scene is very emotional and kind of tender between these two young men. Um, they say we're going to help one another help Fiora remember who she really is. Let's go tell the others. They're making something out of their grief. They're they're inspired to do something about it. And so they run back to our to our new conference room. Yep. The the Homs gathering center. It was a just regular ass like conference room at one point, but at this after all of this, the uh powers of B have officially designated the um Homs emissary. Mhm. Uh, wing of the capital so that's where we go now so moving on you know we are summoned to Callion. he is now the regent de facto leader and um this plan that we kind of alluded to before that's being put in place is he wants to end the high entia's isolation they believe themselves beyond the reach of the mechon and untouchable above the issues of the lower people and uh he sees that that's not the case anymore and it was their mistake he apologizes whoop-de-doo um but he wants to assemble an army of homs nopon and high entia as an allied force i have to wonder what is the martial value of the nopon and that they actually provide because the only nopon warrior i've met is riki and that was done diegetically in-game as a joke. <laughs> and uh, every other Nopon alive asks me to fight and kill things for them because they'll get eaten if they try and do it themselves. So I'm not sure how the Nopon fit into the uh, unified army against the Mechon, but we'll see. They've got to be supply lines and logistics because throughout the world, when you run into a Nopon in the wild, they usually have a shop or they're, or they're adventuring, they're traveling. They're probably like locking down those supply lines that's a good point my dad in vietnam was um he got drafted and he uh, took some tests some aptitude tests and everything and they're like oh hey we're gonna have you doing mortar calculations and uh, logistics and things like that and he was like yeah i failed math in high school what <laughs> so uh Maybe uh, maybe they have the Nopon doing logistics then. Or maybe those um, pollen orbs, maybe they can kick that into high gear and create these this like repository of weapons of mass pollen destruction. We also have the possibility of the 11th hour transformation a la Choo Choo of <laughs> they can become the size of a mechon themselves. <laughs> oh my god, is that coming? I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying. We didn't get that till the the late in the game with Choo Choo. That was the um, Xenogears had the limiters and nano machines, right? S same exact thing with Metal Gear Solid. Same time that game came out, everything it's it just turned into. Anytime you want to explain something, it was just nano machines and. The, we turned off the nano machines. We turned on the nano machines, and now this thing we want to happen happens. It's like the force, you know. Like, hey, there's force healing now. The the very last, uh, the end of the saga, the culmination of everything that's been happening over forty, fifty years. Uh, let's just invent this thing called the dyad, and it'll solve all our problems. And we'll mention it like thirty times in the movie. And uh, 
the people who like old Star Wars will just be like, what the fuck am I listening to here? You know, I thought about that, about introducing these new powers. And if you if you did look back at all the movies, they did progressively introduce new force powers at about the same rate as even the ones that you and I are balking at in recent years. Yes, and I agree. That's fine. You can introduce new stuff. But when it's like at the 11th hour and you just kind of pull it out of your ass of like, this fixes everything. It's one thing to have mm. a new power of like, you know, let's say four ceiling shows up and, you know, it's just it, it it affects a minor plot point or it helps you get through a, a small conflict or whatever. But like to bring up in the 11th hour, like if you take a. Uh, a Sith and a Jedi and you combine their powers and the crossing of, you know, whatever you can destroy the bad guy forever. Eternally. It's like, there's no setup for that one at all. You know? Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of my beef. And uh, maybe Choo Choo wasn't that bad. Maybe Choo Choo didn't go to those lengths, but it was a, an 11th hour ass pull, so to speak. 11th hour ass pull. I love it. I'm sure we've got a few of those in our future. <laughs> so Kellyan says, forgive our hubris. Our decision to ignore the assault on Sword Valley a year ago was shameful and an allied army must be formed and you must be its ambassadors. So a little bit ago, I said that in the original scene, this is when they were asking about who's going to lead this army. That didn't happen in that moment. That happens here. And Shulk isn't super interested in it, in it, which means Ryan steps forward and says, leave the ambassador stuff to me, Shulk, which is a great big all caps three underlined LOL. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I, I was thinking to myself, it's like, you know, maybe, maybe this army does just need a big meathead to tell everybody to go forward, stick to it, keep going as they fall into a pit that they themselves triggered. Eventually, Melia says she is going to be the ambassador. She's going to remain at the capital. So the rest of the team can find Fiora because, well, Melia's not extremely emotionally invested in finding Fiora. Although she's getting a sense that Fiora is kind of, Fiora might be the key to, I don't know, unraveling the whole force. The whole Mechon Force. Um, it's at this time that Melia and Charlotte have a private conversation about Shulk. Um, Nate, what was that test you said about two women talking about somebody that's hopefully not a man as a means to recognize a story's measure of feminism? Yeah, I don't even know if it's a measure of feminism. It's kind of considered just a, a facet of good writing is that can two women have an entire conversation with each other like begin scene end scene uh setting topic conversation without referring to a man in any capacity you know like mm. for example you know tyler when i talk to you about my day or certain things just going on I can probably go through that whole conversation or, or just a generic conversation about referring to my wife, your wife, some woman out in the world. But for some reason in media, whenever women converge on screen, in writing, you know, wherever it is, the topic of discussion has to be centered around some man or something a man did or something they want a man to do, etc. So that's kind of the test is like, you know, in terms of just good writing, can characters exist as self-actualized beings that have their own motivations and characters outside of needing to be attached to other characters um, in that respect so um that is called the bechtel test as i mentioned the bechtel test as i mentioned before and um 
what what game was I playing? Oh no, I was watching um, my wife and uh, her friend play River City Girls, and I mm. was and, and I referred to it as failing the Bechdel test, the video game, because their entire <laughs> motivation is finding their missing boyfriends, and that's all they talk about all the time is their boyfriends. You can't silence love, Mr. Rudis. We'll find whoever took our boyfriends and beat them into the street. Also, their lessons are boring. Yeah, what she said. Nice. But they're punching dudes in the jaw left and right to do it. Yes. So, you know, it's cool. It's like a girl power game. But at the same time, like, maybe they have could have their own reasons for punching everybody. That just involves them. Right. So in this failure of a Bechtel test, Sharla says she's going to return Shulk to Melia as soon as they recover Fiora because it's important to keep Shulk from falling in love with Fiora after they recover her? Question mark. Listen, I'll keep an eye on Shulk for you. <sighs> Whatever can you mean? Well, it's a risky strategy, letting Shulk go off and just hoping he'll come back to you. Shulk and I are merely... Yeah, yeah. But remember... The longer he's away, the more chance his feelings for you will fade. Charlotte is on Melia's side, and um, she sees Melia's interest. She, her womanly intuition kicks in when it comes to, um, I don't know, interest in other men. Again, even just even the basis of that, and like you know, I'm a woman, you're a woman. I can see when you're thinking about a man. That's a little, uh, that's a little questionable, right there. You know, but hey, that that that's the way the game is presenting it, not me. You know, that's what we're seeing in the scene here. So, um, Sharla is reaffirming that she's on Team Melia. Well, we've got Dunbin on Team Fiora. So eventually, Dunbin and Sharla are gonna have to duke it out for who gets Shulk. Right. What a great heart to heart that'll be. I don't know that, or or it could be like a team battle. It could be like a tag team two v two. It'd be Melia and Charla versus Dunbin and Fiora. That would be and amazing. S- sulk, uh, sulk, sulk, sulk. Oh man, what a Freudian slip, dude. Oh, I love it. Shulk sitting on a throne all on Mortal Kombat where you see Shao Kahn in the background. Shulk is just sitting there with his staff, the Monado planted <laughs> into the side of the throne here, watching, going, round one, fight. Round one, fight. Then the, the four of them duke it out. I, I hope we see that. I really do. It seems like Shulk's hesitancy to the anti-Mechan army is just for the fact that he now sees that Fiora is kind of a Mechon. And I'll, at the end of this chapter, we might have to do a talk of what even constitutes a Mechon at this point. Because is the Mechon the giant robot they're riding on? Is that a Mechon? Or is the Homs inside of it that has modifications to their body a mechon we've already seen that fiora like we we talked about it when we saw her last chapter we kind of expected her to just be in this catatonic like shell state just being being used as kind of like a a vessel tool to negate the effects of the monado but she straight up just like wakes up talks takes her helmet off herself you know so at this point it feels just like more like they're piloting a, a 
a mech to me mech so yeah we'll have to have that conversation of later after this chapter is concluded with additional details of like what even constitutes a mech on the line is getting really fuzzy yeah and so for shulk to be told hey let's create an army that's anti-mech on this is a conflict for him because he still has feelings for somebody who would be considered part of that group so that's why i see his hesitancy at least they kind of it's not super clear, but they, I think they lightly touch on that in the dialogue that that's why he's not doing it. So, um, but yeah, there's the, there's the conflict there and, you know, Melia doesn't have this attachment to Fiora. So I don't know what her reasoning for like at the end of the last scene, Shulk was like, Hey, they killed your dad. Let's go murder the shit out of them. Like Shulk was the one talking her into revenge, but now Shulk's the one that doesn't want to make an army to go get revenge? I don't know. The group gathers at the teleporter below Alchemoth to say farewell to Melia and Kalyan and, and everybody else as we head on out here. And then there's a twist. Kalyan, who's originally passive-aggressive about Shulk refusing the ambassadorship, says he's got a decoy Melia in his pocket and he's going to use it as a means to release Melia from duty and assist Shulk. So it's really going to be Kalyan marshalling these forces here, um, and, but we've got this fake uh, empress-elect here. She's in the mask, of course, we know Melia's going to wear the mask, and and she's there. She's present in the in the conversation, although she doesn't speak. And so Melia can come with. And the mission is now that well, we are going to go to Galahad Fortress. That's where the silver-faced Mechon, faced nemesis, aka Fiora, uh, went to. How we know that? I I'm not super sure, uh, but we're going there. And Alvis is coming as well, and he says he's going to be our guide through Valak Mountain, which is on Bionis's arm. Uh, this is the, if you can imagine, um, Bionis, the arm itself is going to be the, the sword arm. It's the right arm, if I recall properly. And the end of the arm is where Sword Valley begins. And... Galahad Fortress is, we don't know exactly, but you might say it's on the hand or it's the wrist of Mechonis, and that is our destination, Galahad Fortress. And off we go with Alvis as our guest. So can I dog on this scene a little bit here? Please. Okay, so um, so something about the construction of these recent scenes, um, you know, I talked, talked already about how the Melia being Empress thing has kind of been like faked like a fake out two or three times now, you know, and so the leadership of this anti-Mechan army, it was suggested to be Shulk, then Ryan stepped up, then Melia was going to hang back and take care of some of this stuff. And now Kalyan's doing it and he says, oh, I'm going to try my best, but I, you know, I'm not really known for my diplomacy or whatever thing. It's just, it's so waffly and weird. Like, does anybody want this job? Is this going to work out? Like, <laughs> it, it just, it kind of makes me feel a little bit weird about the whole situation. But in general, just like on a macro and micro level, there's too many fake outs in these preceding scenes. So it's like, um, you know, we've got the anti mechan army. Whoops. No, we, we don't. We're not doing that just yet. Somebody else will do it. Then 
you know, Melia and Shulk have this emotional parting of ways, and then, nope, she's coming with, you know, so the, all of the emotions we just expressed don't really matter, and then Sharla said that she'd be looking out for her, and nope, she actually doesn't need to do that anymore, because Melia's just coming with, and you know, um, even even like when Shulk was leaving the town, this is more of like a micro example of just a, a weird script for me, a weird scene plotting, is that Shulk says, I should go tell Callie in my decision, and Melia says oh he's too busy you know don't worry about it you guys can just head out i'll relay the information to him well like five seconds later callian's walking up he's not too busy he's here talking with hmm. us and shulk doesn't bring it up so it's like this is just weird scene dialogue like scripting to me where there's just too many fake outs too many like misconnections and like wait what actually are we doing here <laughs> you know i don't know that's just it's one of my like pet peeves in observing the scene is you think one thing's happening and then 10 seconds later the opposite is happening and also there's a quote from melia here where she's talking to shulk and she's saying she understands the value of chasing after fiora because she didn't understand the value of having her father in her life until after he's gone so she you know now that shulk has this chance to get someone back she totally gets it and what she the exact quote is i used to think my father didn't love me until the day he died. And I was like, that was literally the only facet to his character, Melia. He was always talking about you and validating you and focusing on your growth and your journey. And like when his wife betrayed him, he was like, hmm, that sucks. Wait, Melia, what's Melia doing? Are you okay, Melia? Let's go, Melia, you know? And he's sacrificing his life for her and everything. It's like, how did you not know that your father loved you when that's literally all he talked about all the time? I don't know. That's just me. Maybe Amelia. Uh, yeah, it's kind of strange it, it, thinking back on it. Yeah, and it's that same kind of thing where, like, I feel like the high antia all just have, like, emotional lethargy or something, you know? Like, like do you not feel stuff, guys? Is this a little bit subdued here? Except for feeling things for Shulk. That's totally real and strong and amazing. But everything else is just kind of like, eh, maybe. Also, uh, Callian says that the plan, the reason this is all happening, the switch out and Melia going with them, is that she can learn more of the lands of Bionis. And it's like, guys, we're going to Sword Valley. I don't know, does that count as part of Bionis? <laughs> the giant sword? We're, we're expressly leaving Bionis to go attack Mechanis. And uh, he's like, well... Yeah, the whole reason for this mission is for you to learn about the people of Bionis. So it's like, we got a bunch of Homs and Ricky, and I don't know that Ricky's a good representative of the Nopon. Maybe he is. Who knows? Maybe he is, yeah. Also, uh, I wrote in my notes that, damn it, Elvis is coming too, because if you remember from last chapter, I now hate this guy. He said too many mysterious things for me to like him anymore. And he ain't done yet. Yeah, two chapters ago, he was. we were Team Elvis. Now, one chapter ago, I was not Team Elvis. And now I'm mad that he's uh, guiding our actions again. Um, he's... He's kind of dictating our path to us again. And um, I, before I outlined my theories for Dixon being the driving guide of our path to Prison Island, and now we have Alvis who's in cahoots with Larithia and Zanza and stepping in for them if they would have liked it. Um, and now he's the one stringing us along instead of Dixon. And it just makes me feel like, uh, you know, hey, Shulk, 
stop listening to everyone else and just be like, I'm gonna go get Fiora, I'm gonna hop on one of these jets and just fly there. I'm gonna fly to Fiora myself. Stop telling me where to go. Nope. We gotta hoof it. We get on a transport and we fly to Galahad Fortress. No, we don't. We fly <laughs> We fly to the... Shit, what was the name of that jungle? Machna Forest. We fly to Machna Forest so we can walk an entire mountain range and walk all of what I presume is a very hostile Sword Valley environment and walk to Galahad Fortress. Um, we access Valak Mountain from the forest. Uh, we we land in a on the side of a cliff that wasn't accessible to us when we were first there a few chapters ago. Um, one quest later, we've erected a rope bridge to connect it to the uh, more regular areas of the zone, and uh, and then it's just and then the entrance to Valak Mountain is just a little bit down the path. It isn't a very interesting area of the zone there is a faced mechon sized orluga in this area named suelo orluga and um well i'm really op and i just cut him down super easy yeah i don't know why we see you and i just seem to be fascinated with orluga we always talk about them when we meet up with them it's they're like a kindred spirit between the bound Hands and feet and masked, just... We're bound to this game like Orlugas are bound to their jungle Jawas. Yes, exactly. And I was going to say here the transition from, like, rainforest, tropical area, the the comment about how Riki is used to, like, uh, scalding heat where he lives, and once he gets to the mountain that he's too cold and this environment is harsh for him, it's like, this transition is not subtle. It's like one foot long between the rainforest and like frozen tundra and uh it's crazy yeah, yeah and you know having spent the majority of my life in wisconsin i just i'll say i was nowhere near a rainforest i was gonna have to walk for quite a while to get anywhere near a tropical plant <laughs> so in between these two areas we get a brief uh cutscene of lady manith seemingly back in makanis hq wherever that may be and uh, she says, Zanza is not dead. I feel it. So even though um, Metal Face stabbed him with the, the staff, with the green liquid, mm -hmm. Lady Maneth, Fiora, whoever the hell this is, she's apparently not privy to m maybe what was going on in that transaction there. And it even kind of begs the question, was Metal Face privy to what's going on? Why would... Zanza be killed in a way that maybe seemingly he wanted to be? I don't know. I'm so confused. Or, like, what the hell even happened in that whole scene? So we'll probably learn the specifics of that later, but suffice to say that um, Yora Lady Maneth is not privy to why that would be the case, and she's surprised that Zanza is not dead, actually. And uh, she's also confused on why he released the Monado. So... To us, it was pretty clear. We came up with that theory that, um, you know, he wanted the Monado to be able to cut Homs again for whatever reason. And all of these other entities, the Hyantia were trying to mix blood with Homs. The Mechon wanted Hom pilots to be immune to the Monado. Everyone wanted to be immune to the Monado. And uh, our theory was that Zanza didn't like that in the slightest. And that's why he unleashed it. Fiora does not know why. Um, so there's that. And so she she realizes um, she might 
she has some like sort of feelings for Shulk, the the boy, the whatever, um, the Monado wielder, and she doesn't understand it. And she says, "I wish to see the boy again," and flies off to uh, seemingly run into him. And she says, "Like you know, the Monado will connect them. They'll find each other." Blah blah blah. Um, as she does, Metal Face watches on suspiciously as uh, Nemesis Face, so to speak, flies off to pursue mm-hmm. Shulk. Um, and there's also an aspect of Lady Man that also says that Lord Egil or Egil or whatever his name is, um, he is not aware that she's awake or that she's jetting off. So who, who knows? There's, again, we talked about how um, the Takahashi and these writers, these creators, they do a good job of having multiple factions and angles within groups and uh this is also the case here in my opinion i got a big xenogears vibe in the moment where she says is Egil agile aware of my reawakening now i don't know what reawakening means does it mean she's reconnecting with her former hom's self or is some new thing happening in inside of her and as she's talking she's using her hom's mouth to speak and the cockpit is open in this laboratory repair shop thing and she looks a lot like ellie might have looked in her gear vierge vierge and uh because she has red hair too she's our leading lady well i guess she's not if she's been gone for so long but she's a major character uh, let's say and um i just wondered if do you think reawakening means reconnecting with her hom's self or could it mean some serious very new very consequential we don't even know what's going on reawakening is happening that's even subverting the expectations of this agile guy yeah i'm i'm curious about that because it could go all the way back to even our first scene of that revelation of her um with Mm -hmm. the soul transfer and all that stuff going on because the woman that was resurrecting Fiora, Maynith, Nemesis, whatever, you know, um, she was saying how, like, she's this hope for all of everyone, for the salvation of the world, you know, and that she was going to do this and that and the other thing. Um, I'd have to review what that was, but I, I remember that scene. Essentially, this woman kind of resurrecting her was saying, like, she's she's going to be the one to save them, you know? So maybe even going back to that degree, like, does Edgel even realize that a nemesis face with this lady Manith piloting it exists up to this point? Maybe because she was on the mission with Metal Face to Alchemoth, but I, d- I don't know. You know, it could go back that far of just not even realizing, like, hey, maybe it's just a random suit and not realizing, like, oh, this so- super important soul is inside this thing. I don't know. You know, so it's still pretty vague to where I can't make a good theory. And you know how I love making a good theory. So if I'm not willing to make one just yet, then that means I don't have the information I need, to be honest. It's a good cutscene. They speak in vagaries, and we always end with more questions than answers, as usual. We cross the zone, and we're in... Hold on. So this mountain, the the layout of this mountain is actually pretty interesting, because if you can imagine, when you think of a mountain, you think of a peak with slopes on all sides. But this mountain isn't really a mountain. It's an arm. And we start at like the top and so this entire zone is a multi-tiered slope 
of glaciers and mountain ridges and it's all down how many zones do you how many wintry glacial borean tundra zones do you run into in any game where you walk in and you're at the top i can't think of a single one me neither and it also kind of lends itself to the idea that like these zones are more so enchanted or designed to be the way they are because the rainforest and the Aerith Sea are higher than the snowy mountain, right? Whereas the higher you get, the reason we have snowy mountains is because of the cold from the thinner atmosphere and the elevation above sea levels you you get a certain level of warming from being around the sea also we have we mm-hmm. have their position on the earth but genuinely even you know like um when you go to seattle you can quickly go from being in a, on a snowy mountain to being in a in a warm uh lakefront area because of elevation right interesting so um yes. you would think that uh, Valak Mountain would be above Machna Forest, above Earth Sea in terms of elevation, but it's not. And that kind of lends itself to the idea that these energies that are coming from Bionis, like w- we see it at night, and th- this will be the case here when when we look at the nighttime version of the zone, right? We get a we get a different appearance of energy being released, like the land kind of rising up and cultivating itself in certain ways. So maybe it's those unique energies that are deciding the climate of these areas and not just their location. It's a cool zone. I thought Valak Mountain as a zone, as a place to adventure and get lost in and explore, was really, really cool. It's complex. It's really different. I really enjoyed this place. Yeah, and we were talking about not taking the airship and having to hoof it on foot. That was actually, you know, we're joking when we say that because as a video game player, that is exactly what I want. I don't want to just fly everywhere in a plane and skip everything. I want to actually explore it and uh, run around. And this zone got me back onto my completionist bullshit of actually looking at every nook and cranny on the map, even after Air Sea left me. Uh, broken and dejected i am back to enjoying the exploration of being that 100 percent the map guy it's a big map i think it's bigger than oh what was that knee called gower plains mm. i think it's bigger than gower plains this place possibly yeah it's got it's Might got be. more to do it's got more like little crevices and things to find at least in my opinion and just wacky shit going on that we'll get into a little bit later here so so when we walk in alvis says do you see that formation in the distance and he points it's ruins it's a glowing spire of blue we can't really tell what it is from here um but it's way in the distance and it is a skyscraper tall spire of deep rich crystal blue it's very magical looking and that's our first um destination in this zone we're going to take a break here and set aside next week for part two where we will journey into the frozen wastes of alec mountain as always nate and i thank you for listening you're invited to join us on discord and uh, we hope you are having a nice memorial day weekend bye